when um, when Will chose all that music, he had no idea what I was going to be preaching from this morning. And um, quite frankly, as I kind of went back and looked at what it was that he had scheduled to sing, I, I, I couldn't help but smile to myself, recognizing that God, though, though Will didn't know it, no, I didn't know it, God knew it, and he put words on our lips just moments ago that will dovetail perfectly with the text that we are going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn to the book of Philippians and to chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Um, if you were with us during our study of the Gospel Mark, you may recall just how often I actually referred to the passage that I want us to look at in detail this morning. Philippians 2 is an important passage theologically because it is a passage that reveals to us who Jesus, in, who Jesus is in his natures. And I say that word plurally because both of his natures, both the fact that he is fully God and that he is fully man, he is the God-man, is revealed to us in this passage. Uh, but it is an important text not only because it reveals who Jesus is, but it also reveals what he has done and why he did it. Uh, in this passage, we gain a marvelous view from heaven's perspective on the incarnation of Christ and, and also of the atoning work of Christ on the cross as well as the ultimate exaltation of Christ back to heaven. This passage also shares with us the motivating factor behind all that Christ did and, and it charges us to have the same mindset that Christ had. The truth is, every time I, I read this passage and I ponder it, I'm, I'm drawn back to a statement that I once read uh, by Dennis Johnson, who described this passage here in Philippians 2 as a majestic mountain peak that is towering over the countryside, which is why I titled the sermon this morning, uh, The Mountain Peak of a Passage. Um, just to set the stage for where we're going, what we're going to read today, I think it's important for us to recognize that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to the church in Philippi, which was a church that Paul loved deeply. And I suppose we could say that Paul loved all of the churches that he was involved with and that he planted and, and, and was, a, was a part of, that he loved all of them deeply. But he had, the church in Philippi held a special place in his heart. And, and he truly loved that church, and that church truly loved him. We should also be reminded, though, that the Philippian church was a diverse church. It was made up of, of, of a, a lot of different socioeconomic spheres. As a matter of fact, you can learn about the, the, really the, the, the first folks who made up that church back in Acts chapter 16. If you read there, you'll find that there was a, a, a woman whose name was Lydia. She was a rich uh, business lady. She was a lady who had made her living out of selling purple cloths. And because of that, it had, God had uniquely gifted her with financial abilities. But she came to faith in Christ as a result of Paul's preaching the gospel to her. It's also in Acts chapter 16 that we read about an unnamed girl who was a slave girl, but she was a girl who was possessed by demonic spirits. And, and the apostle Paul delivered her of those demonic spirits. And we we, we believe that she also became a part of that church there in Philippi. And it's also in Philippi that we learn of, a, of the Philippian jailer. Many of us have heard that story through the years. He was the one who was charged uh, over Paul and had even beaten him. But then when an earthquake happened and, and miraculously unlocked 
the, 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 the chains that held Paul in place, but he never ran away. It was that testimony that wound up coming, convicting that Philippian jailer's heart and the gospel was presented and ultimately he and his whole house were saved. And so what you find in Acts chapter 16 is a, is a group of three very different people, people who would have probably never crossed paths for any other reason, people who would never been drawn together in any form or fashion with one another, but yet they are united together in this first church in Philippi. And what it tells us is that the gospel changes things. The gospel has a way of changing our lives and bringing us in contact with folks that we might not otherwise ever come in contact with. And that was certainly the case here in Philippi. And here's the point. That's not only true of the church in Philippi, but it's true of other churches as well. And it's true of Ivy Creek. This is, there's a lot of variety in this church family. There are a lot of folks who come to this, this family from very different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different educational levels, from different incomes, from different age groups, all across the spectrum. People come together to be united together as brothers and sisters. And it's, we are united through our shared faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. In fact, it is that shared faith and and. The church's need for unity and the church's need for partnership that, that Paul continues to emphasize throughout this letter that he writes. In fact, he zeroes in on that emphasis here in chapter 2. When he reminds the, the Philippian believers there in verse 1 of the things that they all shared in common, he begins with one very long sentence that poses the series of if statements. He says, if there is any fellowship or if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now I want you to know these weren't questions. Paul wasn't asking these believers if they had those things. In fact, this is his way of reminding them of what they actually did have. This was Paul's way of, of telling, look, you've got a shared genetic code that that." Each of you have because you've been united to faith in Christ. And it is that shared code that Paul says should launch them, as he states in verse 2, into being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and being of one mind. Now, by stating this, listen, Paul is not saying that everybody needs to act exactly alike. He's not saying that we all have to have the same interests as everyone else. He doesn't say that we all have to root for the same football team or that we all have to listen and we all have to <laughs> or that we all have to like the same music he's not saying that we all even have to respond the exact same way whenever we're faced with similar circumstances that's not what Paul is stating what he is stressing however is that the church needs to be unified and needs to be in harmony with one another but let's be honest it's not always easy to do. In fact, it can be downright hard to do. Therefore, we learn in verse 3, if the church is going to achieve unity, then it has to do so by, by being on guard against selfish ambition and against empty conceit, Paul says. It means that as individuals, we must avoid looking out solely for our own interests and we must instead replace that attitude with a profound concern for others. In fact, Paul states in verses 3 and 4 that being united together in a family of believers as we are 
means that our genetic code necessitates that instead of making sure that we always get what we want and having things our way, we must rather replace that attitude with, with one that esteems others better than ourselves. We must replace that attitude with one that looks out for the interests of others rather than our own, as Paul says. In other words, we've got to replace pride with humility. And that attitude and that mentality often runs counterintuitive to the way that we normally think. Putting the interest in the needs of others ahead of our own is not something that, that's natural for us. Paul understands this, and so consequently he appeals as, to us as those who have been united together in Christ and who have, have uh, adopted him and has, we have been adopted into his family that we then are to adopt a new way of thinking. And he does that by pointing us to the chief citizen of heaven, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the peak of the mountain, which is where we're going to start this morning, verse 5. And so begin reading with me there in verse 5 where Paul writes this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him in the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Lord, we do thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to be able to come to this place, to be able to gather around your Word and allow it to speak to us. And I pray that as we stare and as we study this magnificent passage this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be given freedom to work in our lives, to transform us, beginning with our minds and resulting in our actions, so that we may live in accordance with your word. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul encourages us to engage in, in, in putting others ahead of ourselves and to getting rid of selfish ambition and conceit into looking out for the interests of others ahead of our own. But I want you to know, as I mentioned, these types of things aren't necessarily natural for us to do. And I, I would say to you, if you think they are, let me get you to go serve in the nursery upstairs. You will find the words mine being used regularly. Uh, you'll learn quickly that because of our fallen nature, we have with, ingrained within us uh, a mentality that says, I have to look out for number one. But I want you to know that the aim of these verses that we've read this morning is to reshape our minds. It's to reshape our attitudes. And, and the reason that that is true is because how we think about things will ultimately determine what we consider to be worthy objectives in our lives 
And those, those thoughts will ultimately propel us in how we act. Paul obviously understood this. So he, he wants us to work on our minds. That's why he talks about, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In fact, he, he, does, he tells us that we need to reshape our thinking based upon what the, the mindset of Christ is like. And that leads me to the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The first thing that, that Paul clearly communicates to us is that a Christ-like mindset must drive our actions. It is a Christ-like mindset that must get a hold of our thought processes that then must transform the way that we live. Now, it may not be as clear in English as it is in Greek, but, but verse 5 makes it clear that this is a command that Paul gives. There is a, an imperative there in verse 5 that everything he has said from verses 2 through 4 are to become evident within the community of believers. And the way that that is going to happen is he says, let this mind be in you or have this mind among yourselves. What we cannot miss is that Paul affirms that our actions are predicated upon our mindsets and, and that what we think will ultimately drive what we do. Paul also knows that in order for us to think correctly, in order for us to have that correct mindset, then we need to also have the correct example. Now, the Greek is a little ambiguous here in verse 5. There's kind of argument among scholars as to exactly what Paul is saying here. Is he saying that, that we're to have the same mind that Christ had? Or, are we to, or does it mean that we're to have the same mindset that's available to us through Christ? In my interpretation, the, the net effect is the same either way, regardless of which way you understand that Greek verb to be translated. The net effect is, is that what we must understand is that our actions are ultimately controlled by our mindsets and therefore our mindsets should be like that of Christ. That is what Paul is saying in verse 5. The question that we then have to continue to ask is then what does that look like? What does the mindset of Christ look like for us who have been united to him in Christ? Well, that brings us to the second point that I want you to see this morning. The second point is this, our actions, just like Christ's actions, should be marked by selfless service and purposeful sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Selfless service, purposeful sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Verses 6 and 7, I just want you to know, are some of the most densely packed theological statements in all of Scripture. In them, Paul tells us some very important things. The first thing that I want to call your attention to is, is that Paul tells us that Jesus Christ was fully God in the flesh. This is what it means when he says in verse 6 that Jesus was in the form of God. The word translated form there literally means something, what is something is in its very essence. In other words, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ possessed all of the qualities, all of the characteristics, all of the attributes of God. And the reason why he possessed all of those is because he was God. He is God. That's why the NIV translates this verse as Jesus being in very nature God. Now this understanding that Jesus Christ is God sets the stage for us to understand how his mind worked by observing his actions. And it tells us how as our guide, for, for him to be our guide, this is how our 
minds should work and govern our actions as well. Notice that Paul says next, according to New King James, it says that God, as Jesus, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The ESV translates it this way, says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The NIV translates it this way, that Jesus did not consider with equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The best way to probably understand what Paul is saying here and what he intends to communicate is that Jesus, though he was fully God, chose not to exploit his position for his own advantage and for his own profit. He chose not to hold the position that he had held eternally over anyone's head in order to manipulate his circumstances. He could have done that. He was God of very God. He could do whatever he chose to have done. He was God, but he didn't. He, flexing his muscles as God and using his power and prestige was not what he did. Jesus was not selfishly motivated. Instead, as Paul says next, he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He, he made himself nothing. Now let me be clear. At no point in Jesus' life did he cease to be God. At no point did he divest himself of his divine attributes. Rather, what Paul says next tells us what he means. By Christ's emptying of himself and making himself of no reputation, he took on the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. Notice that Paul uses that same word again, form, that he used back in verse 6, and it means exactly the same thing. It, it means that Christ, while he was still fully God, in that he possessed all of the characteristics and qualities and traits and attributes of God, he nevertheless made himself of no reputation by taking on all of the qualities and all of the characteristics and all of the attributes of being a human. In fact, he went so far as to take on the qualities and characteristics and attributes of a bondservant, of a slave. So what we learn here is that Jesus is not only fully God, he is also fully human as well. But we must make sure that we note that in becoming a man, Jesus did did not come and take the highest position in the land. That, that in and of itself would have been an infinite step below him. But that's not where he stopped. No, he went all the way down to the lowest position in the land. He came as a slave, one with no rights and no rank and no privilege and no power and no significance and no status other than as one who came to serve. That is such an astounding, astounding picture to try to comprehend. I want to quote Dennis Johnson once more. He says, consider the infinite distance in dignity that separates the son who is equal with God, who radiates his glory, and the most exalted and admirable member of the human race. However we measure worth, be it through character or intelligence or courage or strength or influence or some other quality, the very best that our human family has to offer falls so short of the majesty of the divine son. But then he says this, but when Christ came to earth, he came not as a monarch in a palace, nor as a wealthy noble in an estate house. Rather, he came as a servant, a slave without rights, whose whole purpose in life 
was to meet the needs of others. What an amazing thought. But unless we get sidetracked with the beauty of these verses alone, we must ask, well, why did Christ do that? Why, why did he display such selfless sacrifice and, and such purposeful service? What did it actually accomplish? Well, notice that Paul says in verse 8 that Christ taking on flesh and becoming a man ended up with him humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Now, if we were amazed before, we ought to be utterly dumbfounded when we read this. Not only did he come and become a slave, but in his humility, it compelled him to go even further, all the way down to the lowest rung on the ladder from the throne of God, all the way down to a Roman cross. This step really defines the humility of the mind of Christ. In fact, we read, according to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, we looked at this even when we were studying the Gospel of Mark, that anyone who is hanged on a tree is considered to be cursed by God. So, so Christ not only came to earth and, and took on flesh, but he ultimately died the cruelest death imaginable at the time, which was a death filled with ridicule and shame, and he died under the curse of God. Why? Why would he do that? Two months before I was born, the Apollo 11 spacecraft landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong took his first steps and uttered these words. He said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I want you to know, based upon what the Apostle Paul writes here in the testimony of the New Testament and the testimony of the gospel, I want you to know that the greatest leap that ever took place on behalf of mankind happened when Jesus Christ, the rightful Son of God, leapt from his throne in heaven's glory and ended up in a manger in Bethlehem and ultimately stretched out on a Roman cross so that sinners like you and I, men and women who do not deserve God's grace and mercy, might be met with God's grace and mercy one day because he accepted God's curse upon himself so that we might, the curse might be lifted from us. Jesus did what he did for you and for me. He suffered death so that we might not ever have to die and be separated from the Father. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the good news. It tells us that as sinners who have been condemned to death because of our sin, Jesus has suffered in our place and has given us the, the, the grace and the mercy necessary that we might one day be freed from that sin and be united with the Father. Consequently, we recognize that what Jesus' mindset was of selfless service and purposeful sacrifice, he did all that for the sake of the gospel, for your sakes and for my sakes. Now, if that truth has never gripped your heart, if you're here this morning and you, you've never really come to grips with that and been able to, to merge that in with your own thinking, I want you to know, think about this for, for a moment. In, in his humility, Christ left all the pleasures and all the regalia of heaven in order to come to earth to die a criminal's death so that you might be freed from the curse of sin. 
Can you imagine such kindness? Can you truly comprehend such love? Friend, salvation is offered to you because of what Christ has done. It will never be offered to you because of something that you do. You will never be able to do enough to merit God's salvation. His salvation comes only through what Jesus Christ has done. No other way. This is why he came, to save sinners just like you and me. Now, if you are a believer and if that truth has gripped your heart and you have committed your life to be a follower of Christ, I want you to know this passage still has much application to you as well. Remember, Paul is showing Christ to us as an example that we are to follow. And, and we are, he is our ultimate example because our lives have been united to him. And therefore, if we're going to follow his example by living lives of, of selfless service and purposeful sacrifice, then like him, we also must forsake our own personal agendas. Like him, we also must not hold our positions or our titles or our reputations dearer to us than, than the service that we can provide others around us. One of my favorite ways of describing this is that we have to remove all the mirrors in our lives. Whenever you're in front of a mirror, what are you doing? You're looking, you, some of you are combing your hair. I don't have that problem. Some of you are looking at, when you're looking into a mirror, you're looking at yourself. You're looking at an image of yourself in order to try to focus your attention on yourself. I want you to know the analogy is we need to remove those mirrors from our lives and replace them with windows that allow us to see out into the world around us, out into the ministry areas of our lives, out into the places where God has called us to go and serve. And listen, sometimes when we look through those windows, we are going to see things that are not going to be very appealing. They're not going to be the areas of our lives that is going to really make us get excited. They're not going to be things that cause us to think, oh, wow, that's going to be a wonderful place to go serve. People will enjoy me there. No, we, we, what we will see is that there are places there where people are broken and they are wayward and they were needy and they are helpless and they are unlovable. But when we see them, we, if we will have the same mindset of Christ, will go out to those places and serve just as Jesus did. Not for our own sakes, but for the sake of the gospel that it might reach and penetrate their hearts just as it's penetrated ours. So that's what it means for us to have the mindset of Christ. That's what it means to allow that mindset to, to push us into actions that are marked by selfless service and purposeful sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Now, with that firmly planted in our minds, we need to consider what happens in verse 9 because there we see a dramatic turning point in what Paul writes. You see, up to this point, all we have seen is Christ's downward plunge. But in the final three verses of our text, we see that plummet is reversed by God the Father who, who pulls Christ upward. Listen to those marvelous verses one more time. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. These verses are intricately connected to the ones before them. Notice that Christ humbled himself in order to accomplish his mission of redemption, but God the Father exalted him. And how did he exalt Christ? Well, he's given him a name 
which is above every name. And, and in doing so, he assures us that one day every knee that has ever been created and every tongue that has ever uttered a word will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's important for us to understand that there is a past, present, and future aspect of that taking place in these verses. Verse 9 says, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name. That's past tense. Verse 11 says that he is, Christ is Lord. That is present tense. That's who he is. It's who he's always been eternally and it's who he always will be eternally. There's your past and your present. But then in verse 10, it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There's the future tense. Past, present, and future all are there. And it's all encompassing because he says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So let me say this to you. If you have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, this passage assures you that one day you will. But the Bible tells us that confessing Him as Lord while you are alive is what makes Him your Savior. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that He has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The message of the gospel compels me to plead with you not to wait to eternity to believe on Christ. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day you will confess that fact. I plead with you to do it today and to be saved. For those of us who are believers and who seek to model our lives after Christ, there yet remains one major difference between what will happen to us and what will happen to Christ, what has already happened to Christ as a result of our mindset and our selfless service and purposeful sacrifice. You see, no one is ever going to bow their knee to us as their Lord, nor can they. And no one is ever going to confess with their tongues that we are Lord, nor should they. That kind of exaltation that Christ received is reserved for him alone. Nevertheless, there is one way in which our paths as believers should parallel that of Christ. And I want to draw your attention to the very last phrase of this text where it says that as Christians, our lives ought to mirror Christ's in that we bring glory to God the Father. In fact, that leads me to the last point that I want you to see this morning. The last point is this. God's glory must be our goal. God's glory must be our goal. Many of you have heard me quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? And it answers the question, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You realize that the greatest goal of your life is to bring glory to God and then to enjoy Him. Brothers, that ought to be, sisters, that ought to be the glorious goal of all of our lives. What we are to do that through our worship. We are to do that through our involvement in the ministries of the church. We're to do that through our aspirations in our lives. We're to do that through our, uh, what motivates us. Everything about who we are, all of it must be done in humility, in the spirit of selfless service and purposeful sacrifice in order that our lives might bring glory to God. This was Christ's ultimate goal. And if we're going to have the same mindset that he had, then... We must live our lives every day for His glory and honor. And if we're going to do that, as it pertains to how we interact and how we partner with others in this church family, we've got to ask ourselves some questions. 
Questions like, what is the chief motivation for why I'm doing or why I'm not doing certain things? What lies behind the decisions that I'm making? Why am I pursuing or, or, or why am I not pursuing certain relationships? Why am I serving in this area? Why am I not serving in that area? Listen, if in our evaluations of our actions, we determine that the motivating factor behind why we are doing or not doing something is anything other than the glory of God, then we must be compelled to stop and repent and regroup because what the scriptures tell us is that our chief end and our ultimate goal in life is to bring glory to God the Father. That leads me then to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. We should display the same humble attitude that Christ had because doing so prepares us to live a life of unreserved self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Does that describe your attitude? Is, is humility a characteristic that drives you to selfless service and purposeful sacrifice? Or truthfully, are you primarily more concerned with your own interests than you are the interests of others? Those are important questions. Does the gospel of Christ consume you are you pursuing every opportunity to engage friends and loved ones and, and co-workers and family with the message of the gospel? Are you willing to sacrifice your own comforts so that others may hear of Jesus and see a life that has been transformed by His grace and by His mercy? Are you driven to bring glory to your heavenly Father? Does His fame and does His renown motivate you to live un, with unreserved self-sacrifice? Summary question, is God's smile the goal of your life? I want you to know this mountain peak of a passage tells us that these things, these attitudes and these pursuits should be the goal of every believer who has been united by faith to Christ. If they are not, then only one of two things can be true. Either you are a backslidden Christian who is out of the will of God or you have never been saved. Either way, the call of this passage is to the gospel. The call of this passage is to be reconciled to Christ. It's to have faith in Him. It is to call you to repentance to have a change of mind that results in a change of action because that is what repentance is. And the question just simply is, will you do that today? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and allow Him to move you and to motivate you for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of the Heavenly Father? I pray that you will because, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.